So when you say, hey, mayor, hey, government, it should be between a man and a woman, you've already lost, to me, you lost the battle because you're, you're turning to the government. So. Yeah, and, and I feel like people um, think that this disconnect between God and the government gives them this sort of uh, extra freedom um, because, you know, the government's silent. They feel like the government's silence in Christianity gives them more freedom to talk when in reality, by silencing a group of people, that opens up a gate for them to silence really anyone they want. Welcome to the Generation Zion podcast with Todd and David. Together, they discuss the war against God in the world today. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Generation Zion. I'm David. And I'm Todd. On this podcast, generally, we are going to aim to talk about the war on God in the world today, among other things. Today's topic, well, really, today's topic is more along the lines of what this is all about. Because, really, we're doing this in our church. We're talking about this, and it's something that I don't think has been talked about enough among, uh, among in churches today. Certainly plenty of podcasts out there, plenty of resources out there, but not a lot is talked about in church, and I think a lot of people are scared of it, to be honest. So. Right. I've, I've been to a lot of churches in my time. Like I've traveled a lot with my uh, dad being in the Army and growing up in there. I've been to a lot of churches growing up as a Christian, and no pastor I've ever had ever talks about anything that you've ever covered, and I thought it was really interesting and intriguing and i thought we should get this out there and that's why we're doing this today yeah well you know one of the i had four goals when when i i started this and the um the the four goals basically were just about you know what's going on why is it going on who's doing it but the the key is really that uh now nowadays the the left the left is is they have specific tactics to get people off balance to get people to overreact and I, and I hate having to do that like uh, identity politics and having to label people with names because it just makes you sound like you just hate the other side like and, and that goes without saying even people on the right are some people on the right are crazy you know with the Overton window shifting every week every year it seems like uh, conservatives nowadays are conserving nothing really um, Agree, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and but part of the problem is is that I think many too many times it's uh, the other side is either Republican or Democrat, and it really is uh, one of the things I I, I always like to think of um, myself is because I'm I'm I've always been independent, never have been a registered Republican or a Democrat, um, and but it's a matter of of the the left and it really is the left and they almost self-identify now as the left um it's interesting too what you've seen over the years how it's no longer left and right it's it's either it's either um your left or your far right mm-hmm. and and it's always this extreme ultra all those type of things so it's 
it, but it's it, they have specific tactics and um, you know what I I like to go back into history and see the progression of tactics but also how as the more things change the more things remain the same and it, it it's 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 pretty it's pretty interesting when you when you really see how um, a, a certain group of people have been sort of saying this is how we're going to be this is what we want to do and they've done it I mean, you got to tip your hat to them. Yeah, and you know, I like I like to say that um, conservatives today are just liberals from uh, five years ago, yeah. with the way they uh, just you know seem to accept their policies from five years ago, basically. And it's really bothersome to me that they just it seems like no one's picking up on that. I'm sure they are. It's just not you know mainstream uh, knowledge really and i feel like you know more people should be picking up on that and you know as the culture sh uh, as as politics change uh, so does the culture um but i'm sure that uh again more uh, more and more people are becoming less and less uh, aware of these things well i think it goes back to to the fact that um when you understand what guides um, certain groups of people and what prompts them to do things they do, they, they really want to cause conflict. Conflict is very important to them. And if they don't cause conflict, sometimes they don't have a reason for being. And if, if that's what many times I think conservatives struggle with, because conservatives, when I mentioned earlier about being uh, off balance, and they get off balance because things come up or somebody says something and they freak out. And instead of understanding that people are going to say stuff that are that are may go against what they believe, may be in a sense understandable to freak out against, they're by freaking out they are actually feeding into the whole thing. Well, and and there's the well, with freaking out they 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 pick a topic and they're like this is the hill I'm going to die on and then they just move to a different hill. Yeah. Um, I see that I see that a lot, like especially even, and <laughs> I don't know if this is allowed, but with gay marriage, conservatives then said, "This is the hill I'm going to die on. We're not letting you, you know, get married. Marriage is between a man and a woman." And then now today, if you ask a, your average conservative, they'll be like, "Oh, gay marriage is okay. There's no problem with that." And, and you know, it, it's. <laughs> Well, that's that's one of the things that I've I've always been against the conservative, um, especially in a Christian setting, is that a lot of people uh, they will say that back like back then, oh no, same sex marriage, how how dare you? Again, hey government, make it make it so so that the, it it goes along the laws or what we want it to be. And they don't realize they shot themselves in the foot constantly by saying, hey, government, do this. Hey, government, do that. And the other side is saying, hey, government, do this. Hey, government, do that. As soon as you make the government the arbiter of everything, that is the problem. And so instead of, instead of us enjoying even First Amendment, real First Amendment freedom right now, we're actually getting the deluge against us because we have done it to ourselves as <coughs> conservatives. As Christians, because we, I personally don't think the government should be in charge of marriage. 
I think the, the church can, can uh, preside over marriage, if you will, but I don't think the government should. So when you say, hey, mar- a government, it should be between a man and a woman, you've already lost, to me, you lost the battle because you're, you're turning to the government. So. Yeah, and, and I feel like people um, think that this disconnect between God and the government gives them this sort of uh, extra freedom. Um, because you know the government's silent, they feel like the government's silence in Christianity gives them more freedom to talk. When in reality, by silencing a group of people, that opens up a gate for them to silence really anyone they want. Yeah. Right? Um, anyone that gets, this is, disagrees with the government, you have the, the leftists. Um, you know, oh, the government's on my side, but at what point will the government turn on you too? At what point are you going to be useless to their agenda? Because at some point, you're going to be the one facing the wall. <laughs> and that's just the reality that's been in pretty much all throughout history. You can probably find something you know, in every major empire in history. Um, but I think that that, give, that brings us into a, a good start about, what we, uh, about our topic um, and a good groundwork. So let's uh, build on to that. Yeah. Well, I, the, oh, one other thing I wanted to say, too, is that I think there are a lot of Christians who think that it should be a theocracy, like the, uh, America should be um, a, a, a Christian nation in the sense that God should be the one who's over everything. And while they're not wrong in the concept, it's never going to happen on this earth. It's not going to be, and you wouldn't want, I wouldn't want the Baptist church uh, down the street or the Catholic church up the street to be the ones who are saying, well, this is how it should be in this country. So that's why Christians should be for freedom and really be looking to say, we should enforce the constitution. And that's what we should be going for. Exactly. No one's going to want to uh, turn to God if you're forcing it upon them. <laughs> that That's just, you know, a recurrence through all of history like if you force an idea on someone they're going to actively reject it whether they actually believe it or not because you're just it seems wrong when you force it onto them which is why uh, I believe America was founded on the uh, principle of being able to uh, you know take on your own destiny because whether you like it or not if you sip the as the saying goes, if you sip the uh, cup of science, you know, God's at the bottom of it, or really anything, honestly. If you, I found even, I've even had a few uh, atheist friends who uh, turned to God in recent years, which I am thankful for. Um, but unfortunately, you know, <laughs> another friend of mine is a pagan who worships Greek gods. And I'm not going to say names, but, you know, he's a little silly for but that's neither here nor there. Um, what I really wanted to get started on, though, is um, you know, the, like what you uh, talked about in the beginning on the, the first one. I didn't really get a chance to hear anything of that. Yeah. So the first one, well, the first one we talked about, it was, um, you know, we first started talking about the the Garden of Eden and and the Tower of Babel, and really I set that up because <clears throat> it was. It was a matter of understanding that right from the beginning, both of those are from Genesis, and right from the beginning, that is where the war on God started. So it was important for people to understand that right in the 
the Satan right off the bat deceives uh, Adam and Eve and basically says, you know, what God says is not true. And then in the Tower of Babel was an example of man's arrogance to the point where they said, we're going to build this tower so high that we're going to finally make a name for ourselves. And, and that's when God, um, God judged them and, and distributed them around the world and given them, gave them different languages. Um, but what we started talking about from a perspective of now was going back to Hegel. And Hegel had a... And it's really, I, I tried to, we're going to have to skim a little. So it, it, this is not going deep into that. But the idea with Hegel, Hegel is a German philosopher. He was an idealist. And for him, what he observed in history was that oftentimes opposing forces clashed and new things came from it. <coughs> uh, so he identified this mechanism, this this um, what was called the dialectic these two forces coming together clashing making new things was later on the words thesis antithesis and synthesis were put to it and that is what is this hegelian dialectic so you have one thing and then it's opposite thesis is is the uh, one thing antithesis opposite clashing together making the third thing and that's a synthesis that synthesis now becomes the new thesis, and another opposite then clashes, and it keeps going that. For Hegel, generally, he thought it was going towards this utopia. After that, it was Marx and Engels who latched on to that and said, well, we don't really believe in this, this uh, kind of conceptual utopia, a utopia of ideas and and um, man really ascending into some sort of supernatural thingy. Um, but for them, it was all about material dialectical. dialectical. Um, that whole material dialectic is what they said, okay, that, those, that thesis, antithesis, and synthesis happens, but it really happens with everything that's down here on the earth. And it's economics, it's class conflict. But you still have these conflicts. And so for them, everything then moved down in history by these class conflicts. But the thing that they also observed, and again, I'm sort of skimming this. I'm, I'm, this there's a lot more to it. But essentially, they said that we can make this happen. We can progress down here. So for them, it was heading towards the, the, um, the proletariat being on top and then the dictatorship of the proletariat and eventually they would get to their own communist utopia but it was never this this kind of airy um, you know there was no supernatural to them it was very much there was no supernatural they were they were atheists so, so it was all materialistic it was all materialistic it was all the stuff so on did there. so um, help me understand better so what you're saying is that basically they uh, um, orchestrated artificial conflicts so they could get to where they wanted? Well, they proposed that you could orchestrate um, this artificial conflict. You could continue this conflict. In fact, all of history is made up. The mechanism that drives history is conflict. Right, yeah. So if war you, creates technology. So whether you manufacture it or whether it happens naturally, you want that because then it continues to progress. Mm -hmm. And that word progress is actually something that was taken up later on. So the idea of the whole progressive uh, mentality the progressives in both sociology as well as politics, that's where they pull that from because it's all about 
you need to progress down this line. Only it's more of a horizontal line as opposed to Hegel, which is more of a vertical kind of progression into this utopia that, that's there. The thing is, nowadays you hear a lot of it put in the way, instead of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, you see a lot of mechanisms where it is problem, <coughs> reaction, and then solution. And the way that it can often happen is that somebody wants to get to a solution. They want to get to some third state. So they set up a problem which oftentimes can, for example, either uh, create uh, anger or fear. And then from that fear, there is a, that really is a reaction. That, that, that is the reaction. So you set up something that's going to cause that reaction. And then you swoop in and say, well, I've got a solution for that. It's going to be this. And I'll tell you one, one way that it happened, whether you believe it happened naturally or whether you believe it was manufactured, was during the COVID era. And you had a virus that was there. And then you had that virus provoke uh, a lot of fear among people. That fear was the reaction. And so what you saw were a lot of solutions such as lockdowns. And you saw masking, you saw the, um, the physical distance and all of those type of things as well as everything that went with it. But it was interesting after that where you had people like you had people in government saying that this lockdown was a good thing because we could also use this for climate lockdown. We can not lock down that for climate because we, we we're noticing, hey, look, air is better here because everybody's staying inside their home. And you can the, say that whether it's actually true or not because no one's going to have the, you know, the tools to verify that. Right. So aside from whether you believe that there actually was a virus, that the coronavirus was natural, all that kind of political junk that you can get into, and I say political in a very wide and very broad way, but it, whatever you think of the actual virus itself, it didn't matter. It was used for, again, it was certainly, you saw fear being stoked. You saw fear being stoked up by media, by the government. And what was great about that from their perspective is that if you want to control somebody, you know they can be a mix of truth and and whatever else. It could be lies. It could just be natural letting people's just minds go. But you know that if you stoke up this fear, you know that you can get to control. So if you wanted to, and from this perspective, if you wanted to get to that control part, that's what you do. Is you you take advantage of that virus. Well, yeah, yeah. Fear is an excellent tool to uh, take control over really anything um and i think for a lot of people even you could argue that telling outright lies is um would be accepted as truth because you know you've seen during covid um i feel like outright lies were told about the vaccine like its uh success rate and among different kinds of uh you know vaccines you can take especially the ones with uh, mRNA, so being, even that being experimental, they, they tried to push this idea that it's 100% effective, it's going to uh, cure you, um, but even from that, people were getting still getting COVID after taking the vaccine, which isn't completely unheard of with other vaccines, but um, they pushed this idea that it has 100% effectiveness or 90%, whatever you want to say. 
but the fact of the matter is people were still getting COVID, people were still dying. Um, and even then with death, the death rates were exaggerated and lied about and people just accepted that as fact. Like, I'm not saying that COVID wasn't real. I got COVID. Um, no, I got COVID too. I mean, and, and, what but, I believe is COVID. I didn't ever take a test. But, but and, and not to say no one died from it, but I also never heard of anyone dying from it. And I've heard about <laughs> almost hundreds of dozens of people getting it. It's like, oh, my mom got it. Oh, my, my, my cousin got it. And not once did I hear, oh, people died from it. Like, and, and that's probably just me. Um, but you know, with all the deaths that they're talking about, you think I would at least hear about one person dying from it, yeah. but I didn't. And I can, I pro can probably ask some random guy on the street and they'd be like, oh yeah, no, I never heard anyone, you know, in my family personally dying from it. And, you know, it just, it tickles me wrong, you know? Well, not only that, I mean, first off, you, you don't even have to have outright lies you can have half truths you can allow uh, allow people to misperceive things and not correct them and you can always use use that going back to the the where it was uh falsified in ways i uh, my wife had a friend whose mother died and she actually died from a fall she fell she um, she was an elderly woman. She uh, broke her hip. It happens all the time. It, when you're elderly, you break a hip. For some reason, the hip is the centerpiece of the of the body that just seems you you'll take a nosedive after that. She did. She died. The family got the death certificate back, and it said COVID. She didn't die of COVID. She died because of like in any other period of time, it would she break her hip. She died. You'd say. Yeah, whatever the complications from the broken hip, whatever they are, it's weird to me still because it happens all the time. But that right there was put on the death certificate. So yeah, that I, was fudged. I, I saw um, videos of doctors coming out, and even some of them lost their medical license over this. And they're saying, yeah, no, we're just putting everyone as a COVID death, even though they're dying from this, that, and the other thing, you know, malpractice, this, you know, wrong dose, that. Um, and they're still like, chalking it up to COVID and they, they lost their medical licenses over that. A couple uh, doctors that um, posted about in and, and you'd never heard about that on the mainstream news, even, even on, you know, quote unquote, right wing news outlets that are totally against like COVID and mm -hmm. all that. You didn't hear about it. Why? Yeah. Well, that's, that's one thing I always notice about anytime there are these big things that happen where it just conveniently happens that solution is put into place. There are always weird things. Weird things happen. And it seems to me the weird things that happen are not just from the fog of, we'll call it the fog of war, but the fog of, you know, of the situation. Because again, nobody knew this about this COVID, um, you know, in the general population didn't know anything about COVID prior to, you know, the, the end of 2019. But also, so, it, you know, everybody's hearing about COVID for the first time. Everybody's hearing about this stuff that's going on. But there's always weird things that happen and things you can't, I, I, you can point to and say, I don't understand why this. I don't understand why that. I don't understand why, for example, ivermectin was suddenly demonized. Uh, again, I'm talking as a normal, uh, just an average citizen. Why is ivermectin demonized when it was actually considered a miracle drug 
you know, about five, ten years before that. And, yeah, yeah, and they were saying, oh, this is a drug for horses or something. Right. You, know, you can't use it on people. Even medical professionals who probably knew otherwise were doing it. And, and even, you know, you know that they're being bought, you know, these well, medical professionals. Yeah, yeah, and but that's the thing. Is it was money that was ruling everything. Hospitals were getting paid for COVID patients. Hospitals were getting paid for that. And it was interesting now you see the... Um, the stats on on flu during that period of time where all of a sudden flu went down. It's like, oh, well, we don't have flu right now. Well, it, I, I don't buy, personally don't buy, never did, that there wasn't as much flu going around. It was just like, well, COVID took its place and there was no flu. And so you'll see these normal flu, these flu numbers, and all of a sudden it dr just, just drops down to almost nothing. And it's because they were just combining them to pump up numbers. And that's what I, I believe. I believe then that they were doing that. But that, that solution <coughs> also includes, again, conveniently, that uh, like the Moderna vaccine where the NIH or the NAID, um, NIAID um, happened to share a patent for the Moderna vaccine. So all of a sudden there's a financial reason. So why wouldn't they be pushing these vaccines? And we're seeing now, you know, now a lot of what people are suspecting is now coming to light. You know, all these Pfizer documents that have been going on, again, trying to minimize that in the media, but their Pfizer documents and all these things that we're hearing now, the idea that masks never really did work and they and, and like that uh, Deborah Burke saying that you know well it was just we're just figuring things out as we went along but they kept saying that oh this is again they kept using science as the reason yeah like, trust the science yeah even though science always changes but the, and and even then they use that idea of science changing and they kind of use it interchangeably like hey this is the science but you know science changes so I'm just gonna change my mind whenever it's convenient. Like Fauci, with his, uh, you know, changing whether changing his mind whether masks work or not, and I, I remember seeing leaked emails too, where he's like, "Yeah, masks don't work," and um, you know, and we're just using it as control or something. They didn't say that exactly, but you know, he, that's essentially what it was. Yeah, and that's the thing though, is that during that period of time, the thing that struck me is that they kept having a new bandwagon and then pretending that the old bandwagon bandwagon never existed so it was uh, don't don't buy masks the medical professionals need it oh then you definitely have to buy masks. you have to have a mask because that's really doing it well don't the masks don't really do much oh yes masks do do will protect you masks will protect you and every time they did every time they flip-flopped for whatever reason it was never like oh we got more information and it was never about how science is evolving it was always trying to protect the idea that science was absolute Therefore, once they jumped on a new bandwagon, the old bandwagon never existed. And it was like, well, well, that never really happened. Right, and you, you, you go wear your mask, and we'll go to our uh, political elite parties, unvaccinated and unmasked at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, go make sure to take your vaccine and your booster too. Yeah, and and and, and it was always, it, yeah, it was always that double standard that was that was always involved by the by really they were they are the elites they, and they can they can. They can do that. They can both afford to do it and they have the clout to do it. But that kind of goes with what some of the other things that we talked about in, in our church here is that I came up with these categories because the one thing I think is important is that I came up with, there are 
five categories, but I'm focusing on four of them at the moment. And th these four are, number one, the architects. Number two, it was the henchmen. Number three, the useful idiots. And number four, the renegades. Right, and I, I remember that. Uh, just just uh, break it down really quick so we can use those terms without yeah. confusing people. <laughs> so the architects are people who design. They're people who are behind the designing of, of the uh, any kind of agenda. Now, it could be a good agenda, it could be a bad agenda, but it's the people who are designing the agenda. And I, in my mind, you can subdivide the architects into the shadowy figures you never hear about, and then the people we do hear about. Fauci, I would say, is, is probably a, an architect, although he's the we see about, the person we see about, the other people behind the scenes. Um, I, I, you know, again, people we would never even know about <coughs> that are people who have, uh, again, a lot of money, a lot of power, and they are the people who kind of stay behind the scenes. But people like a George Soros and, and his uh, financing uh, the DAs around the country, giving them a lot of money to get in, and then you'll see what those DAs have done since then. Well, that's a kind of somebody who I would consider to be an architect. Then there were the henchmen. The henchmen are the people who really are the next, in a sense, next rung down. They have a matter of, uh, of measure of power. They have a measure of money. And they are, in a sense, taking their cues or their orders from the architects. The people who are designing them are sending it down to them. And then they are the people who are who are sort of in the sense of they're the lieutenants. So they're still brass in a sense, but they're, still, they're the lieutenants. And they're the ones that are, that are pushing, it, uh, pushing it forward there. And uh, people that I would kind of, I, I, in some ways, I consider, I'm trying to figure out whether Fauci was there, but I will go with a, like a Yuval Noah Harari, because I would put a Klaus Schwab uh, as the Clash Bob is, is from the World Economic Forum as an architect, and I would put Yuval Noah Harari as a henchman. He kind of gets trotted out from by the World Economic Forum. He is a historian, and he's kind of been, well, he's not their face. He's somebody who's there every single year. Um, he's been labeled as a lead advisor to Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. We can get into that whole thing later on. But um, other, other people, like I'd say even like Al Gore, Al Gore, and, and some, here's the thing about the henchmen can become architects. Henchmen, after, especially after the architects die off, after the architects are kind of, even they, they go from being public figures to fading back, that henchmen can then come up and, and become the um, architects as well. But they are oh, the so lieutenants. You, so you think it's like a rank system. They can move up uh, depending on you know, how the architects feel. Well, I, I, I think it may be sometimes that. It may be sometimes that. It may just be uh, with time. With they, time on their but, own, depending on their position. Yeah, they, they kind of grow on their own. They kind of, it, it's not always, it's, it may be somewhat of a corporation where with time, most people don't stay at the level they do as they start with at a corporation. They kind of keep moving up. But you can move from these different areas. with When you gain more power and gain more money, you can move. Right, and not and everyone has to be hand-picked because there's already these, uh, you know, these functions <laughs> in place that already allow them to climb you know, when they're selected by other people, whether they're a part of this cabal or not. You know? yeah. um, 
and yet we go. So I'll move on to the uh, useful idiots, right? Yeah, so the useful idiots, and you'll see that as, as things go along, like the useful idiots is the widest category because the useful idiots, I gave that name. It was a historical name, not a name I gave them. It's it's actual his, the, where it came from. Its origin is a little bit murky because some people attribute it to Lenin. Some people attribute it to somebody in the Politburo there in the Soviets early on. Some people have even uh, pointed towards someone of the Nazis. Um, doesn't really matter because what this is, is that these are the people who carry the water for everybody else. These are the people who may believe in what is being, uh, being said, and but they're the flunkies. Or they may be deceived. They may be really duped into thinking that they're doing the right thing. And so either way, they are people who are just being used by the people above them. And so there are really a large, large, wide swath of that. A lot of the activists that you see, a lot of uh, the people who join Antifa, I would put in there. Because Antifa is a shadowy thing, but obviously their coordinator is Antifa. Um, but I would put the I would put the coordinators in the henchman area again. Antifa is that that weird kind of amorphous group, but somehow they yet seem to all get together at the same time. So there is right. some coordination you can't see. So I would put the coordinators in some sort of henchman in the henchman category. But I'd put your basic rank and file Antifa member in the useful idiot. Yeah, and I, I would, and I would argue even that the useful idiots are the most important part of this. Uh, oh yeah, whole system because without them, you can't. It's it's kind of like in, in the military. You know, you have your officers, and you have your enlisted, and you have your lower enlisted. And without your lower enlisted, you, there's nothing you can do. The officers aren't going to go out there. You know, back then they did, but they're not going to go out there and you know shoot the bad guys. But um, that's what the lower enlisted are for. They, you, yeah. but without them, you can't do anything. Yeah, these are just grunts. These are privates. These are these are corporal. Whatever. Though, honestly, since I'm not a military guy, I you know, I will, I will. Uh, my military um, terminology will wear up quickly. I will <laughs> use it quickly. Um, but the the fourth category is an interesting category to me as well. And these are the renegades. And the renegade category is this category that's off the sides, and they're usually because they're free-thinking, they're very idiosyncratic people, and they may be good people, they may be evil people, but they're off on their own. And sometimes what they what they do is something that is, they tend to be again creative people, technological people, um, and I put uh, people like Elon Musk over there. To be honest, I kind of put him over there. I. Uh, some people think he would be in one of the other categories, um, maybe henchmen, but I kind of put him over there. But I would also put like Charles Darwin over there because I think Charles Darwin, while he originated the theory or at least he codified the theory of evolution, I think that as you read The Origin of Species, you get the sense that he is a naturalist in the mid-1800s who was honestly trying to figure it out and trying to like do his honest best of figuring out how it all works. And he came up with a theory. He's not fully sure of his theory, even as you read the book. And he understands that in some ways it could be a house of cards that if something's found or something's not found, it could just all fall apart. But I think the, the after Darwin, it was his theories, his codified theories were then used in a, in a very specific group of ways 
And so you saw, for example, Marx and Engels latch on to those type of things. You saw the eugenicists latch on to that. Uh, but I think he himself may be more neutral. I'm not saying that he's just some good guy. I'm saying that these people could be neutral, could be good people, could be bad people, but they have, they're more focused on what they're doing, their idea, their thoughts. Another person I would put in there who's definitely not a good guy is Aleister Crowley. And Aleister Crowley was a, he was a guy in the late uh, 1800s and into the early 20th century. And he wanted to be the wickedest man in the world. He was a Satanist. He wanted to be Satan's chief of staff. And here's the thing. Here's the reason I put him in there in as a renegade is while he was, he was an evil man. He wanted to be the wickedest man in the world. He was called that by, um, by a newspaper. Uh, they wrote an article about him. He was very famous. But here's the thing. And he was big into this weird sex magic. And it was, it was very bizarre when you, when you read about it. And his thing, and that one of his famous books is called The Book of the Law. And in, and in there, um, he, this was supposedly dictated to him by a guardian angel called Iwas. And in there, the, the famous quote that came from it is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Right? I've heard that. So that right there is the quote. Now, it goes on a little bit um, after that. But again, it's part of this whole book. Here's the thing. If he himself, and he died in 1947, if he had just died and nobody really paid much attention to him after that, then he would just be a footnote in history as being some sort of whack job who had a lot of weird sex. But... He was a guy who inspired a lot of people after that, including Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard professor, who in the 60s, he said he basically was taking up the mantle of Aleister Crowley and ushering drugs, because uh, <clears throat> uh, Aleister Crowley was big on, on drugs, and that was partly how he did his rituals, and all sorts of drugs. In fact, he has a book called Diary of a Dope Fiend. So I just want to back up a bit. So I just want to make it clear. So Aleister Crowley, I've heard. Um, but did he call himself like evil or was he like one of those Satanists where like, oh, Lucifer actually loves humanity and he wants to set us free. No, was he that kind of guy? No, where no, he, he was an evil. He, 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 he called, called himself, himself the beast. He called himself the beast 666. So he called himself evil. Yeah. He, so why would people want to follow that a little off topic but i it's a good question no it's a good question um and i think it would be good to have a whole podcast devoted to alistair crowley but in in essence it was first off he got a lot of he got a lot of sound there was a lot of sex involved so i think that was that was part of it there was drugs involved but i think that there were part of what he wrote down like he had uh the he had a lot of experiences, and in a sense, it was cool. You know, like there was, it's, there's always a part where Satan is cool. You know, um, I, I think uh, he. Here's the thing, though, is that he he started this uh, the OTO, and it was it was his little uh, Satanist uh, sect, and um, and part of the people who were part of that who kind of kept his 
his name alive again. Still would have died out with him at some point. But like Jack Parsons, I don't know if you heard of him, but he was he was uh, he was part of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I don't think I'm familiar. And he used to do these satanic rituals out in the desert of California with his buddy named L. Ron Hubbard, who was the guy who was behind Scientology. Yeah, I've heard yeah. Hubbard. Hubbard is familiar. Um, yep. But a lot of this has to do with people want power. And if you can get supernatural power, I mean, it's it's a very old story. It's, it goes back to, I mean, it goes back to the ancient days. But, you know, the, um, the story about Mephistopheles, who was, you know, basically selling a soul to the devil to get power and money. Um, you've got, the, nowadays, you've got people going back, and I don't know how much it is nowadays, but even like when I was growing up, the blues made a resurgence, the blues music made a resurgence that everybody was talking about Robert Johnson selling his soul. Right, that guy, yeah, his soul, soul, the be good at guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah all that yeah. kind of stuff. So that that's always been a fascination for people. So I, I think there's a lot to Alex Crowley. The reason I put him in the Renegades is because, again, if he died out in 47, and later on Timothy Leary hadn't picked it back up, then Jay-Z wouldn't be wearing the Do Without Wilts um, sweatshirt. You know, that that's the thing is, you wouldn't have that continuing on to this day unless somebody just really went into this arcane area and happened to pull something out. But it was Timothy Leary who, who really was big in the drug and hippie scene of the 60s, ushering in the age of Aquarius. And for Alistair Crowley, it was the age of the Iana Horus um, that, you know, all that went in there. So you've got this renegades there. And you've got a mix of people. Again, you got people who could be good. You got people who could be bad. Could be people who are neutral. But what they have somehow, who, what they, what their ideas were, were really what people went with. And those ideas. So Elon Musk kind of has his own thing, but you know, for him, um, you know, his continuation of Tesla and his his SpaceX and all those type of things, his neuro Neuralink implants, those type of things. Um, I think there's a lot, I, I, I don't know about Elon Musk. I don't know why people are so fascinated by him necessarily, um, but I've never been fascinated with him, but I kind of put him in there. So those, those are the, those are those four, those four areas. And the reason I think it's important is really, I focus on the useful idiots because from a perspective of just being just people, we will come in contact right, Yeah. People we see every will be day. in that area in that area yeah, it's it, not every day you meet someone like uh bill gates or right yeah you're right. not going to see those kinds of people every day so yeah yeah in fact that makes sense in fact vast majority of these people if they're still alive you would never get close to them you would never whether you wanted to or not you would probably never get close to them but the useful idiots you will come across and the useful idiots are the people again who particularly are out doing causing mischief for this so it's the fifth group that i have are all the other people all the normal people the people who don't want to get involved in this stuff so they're like the useful idiots are more apt to be the the people who are trying to bring in in every way they can that the drag queen story hour and there are a lot of people who don't want that in their schools but these are the people who are trying to get in, the people who go and specifically protest, like Kirk Cameron's reading in the library, and you know all the people that you'll see these videos of, those are the useful idiots. But those are the people that, from a Christian perspective, we need to minister to. 
as well as the normal people. But I, the, the, that fifth group is just everybody else who are just don't want to get in the fray. I would say it's it's important to really you know talk to these people that are not getting themselves involved and be like, hey, this is what's going to happen to you whether you like it or not because you live in. I hate saying this. You live in a society, <laughs> and whether you like it or not, the cultural health of society is going to affect you directly because you live in it. You live with all the rest of us, so it's important, you know. And I don't like picking sides, but you have to pick a side, you know. Well, unfortunately, they make it so you have to pick a side, and that's part of the conflict. That's part of that's part of that's why I brought up the whole Hegelian dialectic to begin with is that when it comes from a Marxian perspective, they want you to pick a side. And if you pick a side, I'm not talking about what you believe. I'm talking about this is where if somebody picks a fight with you and you fight them, that not only um, gets you thrown kind of off balance, but it actually feeds their mechanism. It, their, the whole mechanism has to be conflict. Always has to be conflict because if there's no conflict, then this progression doesn't happen down, down the line. Right, and if you, uh, but they're you know you're letting them win if you don't you know do anything about it, and they want they want a solution, but they want their solution. So the only way you can really counteract that is by getting both those regular people and bringing in those you know your so-called enemy to your side. I don't like to call them enemies because I think we all should be on the same side, but. That's neither here nor there. Well, I, I think that they can act like enemies. They may not be enemies, but they can act. Their behavior can be like enemies, and I think that's where the Christian perspective comes in. Because I think, from a non-Christian perspective, they're easily once they draw the line, then they've they. And that's the thing is, it, it, which really leads us to who another person I consider to be an architect, and that's Saul Alinsky, and he was a a community organizer. In the early part of the 20th century, into the 60s, he was big in the 60s. But he was at, out in Chicago, and he codified what he his famous book is called "Rules for Radicals." It was it was under the sort of the guise of just being, oh, we're just organizing communities, and I think in some ways he really thought that. But it's interesting when you see his tactics, his tactics are always about you draw this line. And this line I just drew meant that if I'm on this side, I'm good. And if you're on the other side, it's not just the opposing viewpoint, you're evil. And that's the key, is that they draw the line so they can proclaim the other side evil. It's not just about having a fair debate. It's not being having any kind of thing in good faith. That's one of the keys. And that's where Christians, I think a lot of times, they get drawn into that. And it's not that you can't stand up. It's not that you can't say, this is what I believe. It's not even that you're not disgusted or that you you think that, uh, like, again, a drag queen story hour for kids, particularly when it is, it is um, the, the drag queen is no longer telling a story, but it is, you know, shimmying in a thong in front of kids or, you know, that kind of thing where they're, now you've got a sexualized situation happening, and it's not always just the story hours, but it's other, you know, um, drag queen uh, the events. But when you have that, yeah, you may not want to have your kids, but there might be a choice that you can do where you say, 
I, as a citizen, am not going to, if, if my library is going to be doing that, I think it's wrong. I'm going to boycott that library. I'm not going to go to that library. I may also, um, you know, be talking with my neighbors and say, look, that's, that thing's going on. But I don't have to necessarily go and protest. Personally, and this is just me, I don't think protests do much. I personally don't think the whole protesting thing does much. And all it does is, quite frankly, I think it tends to just feed into, feed into that, especially the media nowadays, the mainstream media on both sides tend to focus on whatever's going to sell ads. So they will, they will put up whatever is the most salacious type of video so they can get your clicks, they can get your views, they can sell ads. So they're not going to necessarily process it from any either a logical or a moral viewpoint. They're going to just do whatever, and that's both sides. I think it's pretty much just mainstream media, right? And, and that's you know, and when when we protest, I think um, on the left, it just causes mischief, and then nothing comes of it. And when I'm not even not even right wingers, just Christians in general, when they protest, like when they protested in that in front of that abortion clinic, they got prison time. Um, and no one did anything about it. And people were like, oh, this is going to send us all over the edge and we're going to take up arms. And No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> you, you, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to get out of your chair because you're comfortable. And that's the problem with people today. They're too comfortable. And as soon as that comfort disappears, then maybe something will be done. But as long as this comfort is still there, and as long as we can sit here in this room without the fear of being, you know, no-knock raided and shot, no one's going to do anything. And that's the problem, because no one's going to want to do anything. Well, it, and the thing is, is that they're, they're, they're not going to do, want to do anything, because everything they see is, honestly, it, it's power's been stripped from them. Any, anything that they can do has been... Uh, just usually an example of something that I personally wouldn't do. Again, I can understand. Um, I, I'm against. I'm vehemently against abortion, but I don't see any any reason to go protest abortion. I understand more of the people who want to um, talk to the talk to people who are going into it and try to you know give them more information. Um, but I the idea of protesting to me rarely makes does rarely does anything and so i i i'm just not a, and again this is my own personal thing it's not something i think oh everybody should not protest it's if you want to protest knock yourself out but i personally don't think they really do much i think protesting is really just virtue signaling it's, 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 yeah. it's just hey look at me i'm a good person i'm protesting for x y and z like um yeah i want social media points um, but in reality, all you're doing is just making everyone think you're annoying. And even sometimes it's just sat, even if it's not for so social media, it's at least self-validation. Like you said, you're, you're at least virtual, virtue signaling. And so you think, oh, well, see, now I've done, I've done, right. I'm done a my hero good day. Now. Yeah, I'm, I'm a hero. I've done my good deed for the day. Um, the thing is about Saul Alinsky, and I think this is what you'll, you'll come across, um, and this is why I want people to understand this, is that is that he his tactics brilliant tactics by the way they're brilliant i mean i i do think he was brilliant at what he did but this is his 13th rule it says pick the target freeze it personalize it and polarize it 
And when you do that, you are, first off, that's where they always need something to be personalized. They have to, they have to find somebody. They can't protest against a, an organization. They've got to pick somebody from an individual and you've got to polarize and freeze it. It's always unfair tactics. In fact, he had said that one thing he did is he would, when he first kind of, kind of made his name, he would just go and just make outrageous accusations against a specific person. And he would, he knew that they were outrageous accusations and that got his name out there. And he also, when he chose somebody that he knew that other people would, would like somebody they didn't like. And even if it's somebody they didn't like, maybe he was just a representative of a thing they didn't like, you know, a company, the, the, uh, the one of the, cause he was big in the meat pack, you know, meat packing areas of, of Chicago. So from a company, you pick somebody and then you're making him your target. You're making her your target. And so everything is going there to destroy them. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to polarize it. You're trying to freeze it. You're trying to make sure that everything, and when it uses polarizing, again, it's always that conflict. It's always thesis against antithesis. You always need to have that kind of conflict. You can't, and then it's always head to head conflict that you want too. That's the thing. It's not even like, oh, you got to come across somebody and just sort of like a little, little, uh, a little oblique, oblique shot against the bowel. No, you've got to go ram right into them. And that's what you have to do. And he was good at that. But the problem is Christians many times take that bait. They, they take that bait and it is an unfair place to be many times. They zero in on you. I, I don't, I, I have one of those, my pillows. Uh, somebody gave me. I don't care about Mike Lindell either way, but as I was watching in this past year plus, everybody zeroed in on Mike Lindell for the the guy who owns Mike my pillow right. thing. Everybody, and it was it was to destroy him. They took him off Twitter. They did right. That happens in politics a lot. Whether you just you run a smear campaign against the, in this case, um, the my pillow guy. And, you know, that created a lot of noise. But the thing is, is that when you're in politics, you kind of expect mud to be thrown your way. When you're, when you're a, you know, a private, a private citizen, citizen yeah. then it's a whole different thing. And so yet they went after him. Like I said, I don't care either way about him necessarily. I don't want to see anybody get unfairly victimized. But they went after him. And so to me, that was a classic Alinsky type of tactic. That was what he was, was about. And you see people who were very much Alinskyites, two prominent Alinskyites, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. They both consider themselves Alinskyites. So my point in bringing that up is that, again, if you understand their tactics, you're not going to be easily thrown off. You're not going to be baited into something. It's not that you don't ever enter the fray. If somebody attacks your family, yeah, I, I would expect somebody attacked my wife, uh, whether it was whether it was uh, verbally, but especially physically. Oh, I'm going to protect her. I'm going to protect her, and I'm going to defend her. But I'm not going to be baited into something. If somebody said something to me about my wife, I would laugh them off because you're an idiot, and why should I care what an idiot says? somebody goes after her directly, then yeah, I'm going to defend her. And I think you should. So it's not, it's not a, it's not about being weak. 
it's not about even a place of weakness. It's about understanding that as soon as you get baited into something, that's weak. That's the place of weakness. And as soon as you take the bait, you've lost. It doesn't matter how many facts you have. It doesn't matter how eloquent you can be. It doesn't matter how loud you can be, how big you are, how, much, how many guns you have. You've already lost. And so that's what I want people to understand is that if you understand what they've been doing along the way, you understand where they're trying to go, you can prepare to, uh, you can prepare so that you're not even baited into that whole fray that you didn't, you don't need to be a part of. You might get sucked into it beyond your control and then you have to deal with it after that. And that's something you can, you can process, but as soon as you get baited into it, boom, you've lost <laughs> well, that, that the, the thing I, I was is, thinking about something. I just I just lost my train of thought when you were getting into that. <laughs> but you know, here, here's oh right, right. I was gonna say, um, you said um, Hillary Clinton, and every time someone says Hillary Clinton now, I immediately think of Epstein, and that's some. I just want to like make a little note. That's something I'd like to talk about later. Is just Epstein in general, and you know, his suicide and alleged suicide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of his clients, client lists, and about what was actually going on on that island. Um, you know, just a, as a little note, that's why I wanted to, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> just lost my train of thought for a minute. I, I uh, we'll have to, yeah, we'll have to talk about that sometime. But you know what, this, I, I, I think this is a good place to, this is a good place to, to stop. I mean, the, the other, I think this goes through the basics of what we've talked about. Yeah, no, this is a excellent foundation for uh, episodes to come. I think we're coming up on an hour now. I will uh, actually see how much time it was in uh, editing. But uh, I think what I want to do is like an hour, hour and a half. I don't want to go too long so we can uh, build upon what we have so we're not dragging it out for too much so we can have some time to prep between. Yeah. Well, I think an hour. I think an hour is usually it is often good. I have no problem, however long it, it is, as long as people want to consume it. Then mm-hmm. you know whatever whatever works. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna upload this, see how it does, and we'll go from there. Hopefully, people are interested in this. If you're listening to this now, thank you, and um, you. We will have more in store for you later. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell your enemies. <laughs> tell your atheist friend. <laughs> tell your atheist enemy. Um, and we will, yeah, again, we'll have more later for you. We don't really have a proper outro or anything. Um, but we'll, we'll, figure, we'll figure that out as we go. All right. Thank you for listening. This is Generation Zion. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.